Welcome to Through the Eyes of a Therapist with me, your host and creator of the podcast, Crystal Martinez Acosta, or should I say Cristal Martinez Acosta. Today, we're going to be discussing racism, inclusion, diversity, microaggressions, and a bunch of other really important topics. I have a panel of guests and experts and people of color that have joined me on this conversation. We're going to be talking about each of these topics and we're going to be discussing our own experiences out in the professional world and in higher education as people of color. Today, I have a few special guests here with me in my little makeshift studio. We're going to be talking about mental health and how it ties into diversity, inclusion, and how people of color have specific challenges when it comes to acculturation and assimilation and mental health. So I would like to introduce everybody who is on the podcast today. So first we have Hazel and we have Myra and we have Jor. So I'm going to ask each of them to introduce themselves to you in just a second. Um, I did want to talk about this topic because it's relevant in my personal life. And so we have Hazel Delgado. And she is in Nebraska right now where she was just telling us that she got her first experience of warm weather today for the first time this season. Go ahead, Hazel. Talk to us about yourself. Okay. Hi, I am Hazel Delgado. I am an El Paso native. I moved to Nebraska to get my doctorate. So I got my undergraduate degree at the University of Texas at El Paso. Uh, where I got my bachelor's, and then I got my master's at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where I'm actually still pursuing my PhD. So I'm all the dissertation right now, and working on that dissertation, but also managing my full-time job, where I work at, I work for the Nebraska Supreme Court um, as the Court Improvement Programs Project Evaluator, Um, so I'm the Research and Evaluation Specialist. Hoping to make my way back to Texas after I'm done here, but we will see. Oh my gosh, so a full-time job plus a dissertation. So my daytime job doesn't have much to do with my dissertation, so it's really jumping into two separate literatures, because I really focus on stereotypes, discrimination, and a lot of cultural issues, Um, and that's what a lot of my research has been during my time um, getting my doctorate. But now I'm focusing a lot more on the court side, and race is definitely still something that I'm very passionate about, and looking at disproportionality um, and disparities within juvenile justice as well as the child welfare um, cases. That's me, and that's what I do. Awesome. Thanks for that introduction. Sounds very interesting. I might have to pick your brain a little later, but that sounds like a whole other episode. (laughs) Oh, yeah. We're going to go ahead and go with Myra now, and she's going to introduce herself. And you might recognize her because she's on a previous episode. Hi, everybody. I'm Myra Garcia. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. 
Um, I work with Crystal as a therapist supervisor at a local counseling center in El Paso. I'm also an El Paso native. I received my bachelor's in social work from the University of Texas at Austin and my master's in social work from New York University. I've been back in El Paso for about two years now and I'm excited to talk about this topic because I think it's very relevant in my life right now too. Um, I also feel very passionate about diversity, inclusion, and culture just because of the unique culture that we have in El Paso and then living outside of El Paso. So I think it's very important that we talk about these things and how it affects our mental health and people of color and our community's mental health. All right, and now we have Jor Arcila. He will introduce himself now. Go ahead. Awesome. Um, my name is Jor Arcila. Uh, Graduated from the University of Texas at Austin with a degree in sport management. And I got my master's from NYU in a degree in sport sports business. I'm from Houston originally, but I moved to El Paso about a year ago. Um, currently, I work with Visit El Paso um, as their sports sales manager. So my job essentially is to bring sporting events to the city of El Paso, whether they're flag football, soccer, um badminton, table tennis, anything, you name it. Um, trying to just bring that economic impact uh, to El Paso and, and really develop the city, what it can be, its potential. Okay, cool. I did not know that. So this is the first time also that I met you. So I'm really grateful that you um, agreed to be on the podcast, even though I'm like a total stranger to you at this point. <laughs> but we've got some wine now. So <laughs> Okay, so now that everybody's introduced themselves, I'd like to propose that we begin talking about race and acculturation and assimilation and inclusion by starting off with um, some research that I found a little bit earlier. So basically what I would like to extract and analyze with you all is what I found in that article. So what it says is that people of color, non-white people of color, have, I guess, specific challenges when it comes to mental health or mental health issues, especially when they are forced to um, assimilate or acculturate to white culture, to the greater quote-unquote American culture, right? So I can see how each of us have had experiences, not only because one, we're people of color, but two, we've lived outside of El Paso, all of us have. Um, and Hazel out there is living in basically the Midwest, right? Is that what that's considered? Yeah, or is that, yeah. Yep, I am in the Midwest. Okay, so what I'd like to bring up is just the fact that people of color experience mental health problems or emotional problems at a greater degree and a greater frequency and a greater intensity generally in the United States, especially when they are around other white people. And it's especially because of the pressure that we have to assimilate. So I would like to ask you all about your experiences about that. If you feel like you have had any emotional struggles or any type of reaction um, when it comes to being a person of color in a predominantly white culture, workplace, or school. I remember when I first moved outside of El Paso to start college in Austin, I had never been east 
of El Paso. The furthest east I had ever been, I think, was like Van Horn, which doesn't really count because it's like an hour and a half or two away. But when I first moved to Austin, I remember moving into the dorms and that in itself, I remember thinking, well, that's a privilege in myself for being able to live in the dorms and even move away. But when I moved into the dorms, I noticed that there were not a lot of people like me in terms of my skin color, people that spoke Spanish. Even the way we dressed was very different. And my family went with me. We had driven down there to take some of my stuff. And I remember thinking, well, my parents kind of stand out. Like, they look fairly different. I look different. But I was just so excited about school that I was like, oh, it's probably just here. And as the year went on, I think I started to feel really left out and didn't find a niche. I think college was already really hard because as coming from a community like El Paso and the specific school in the area that I grew up in, I wasn't prepared for college at all. So I think I already had that disadvantage. So I was struggling there. And so I think people usually go to like their social system, right? Like their social support. And I remember thinking, I don't really have anybody that can relate. I had my roommate, but she was um, from College Station. And so her background was just very different than mine. And I started to seek out friends or people that were like me. So I joined the Mexican Student Association. And then I realized that I didn't fit in there either because I'm not from Mexico. And I was like, okay, well, I could see the difference. These were students that were coming. These were kind of like international students that were coming from like um, Mexico City or other parts of Mexico. I felt that I wasn't welcome there because I'm not directly from Mexico. And then I kept searching and searching and I remember thinking, man, maybe I should go back home. There aren't a lot of people that are like me here and if they are, I'm not really accepted. And then I was struggling in school. And then finally I found, um, I found my niche in one of my classes. I found a girl who was from Dallas, but she was feeling the same way that I was. And she told me about an organization that she was in. I ended up joining the organization and that really helped me feel a lot of support even when I was struggling academically. I felt that whenever I would talk to people that weren't people of color, they couldn't understand why I was struggling so much. They didn't understand that I was a first generation like college student, that I was the first one to move away. And then leaving El Paso, you're so used to, I think you kind of just expect other people of color to be around because it's so present here. And so when I moved there, I remember it was like a culture shock. And I was like, this is so different. Like the stores are different, the accents are different. I can't just speak Spanish to anybody or everywhere. And I think that was probably one of the hardest parts of moving away for me that I was not just getting used to being in college, but also like the culture shock of not being around a lot of people of color. Right, because yeah. here in El Paso, I mean, we're connect, we're a border city, so we're connected to Mexico, and there's at least a million people combined, right, in our community with, I'd say like 97%, I don't really know the actual stats, but I'd say like in the 90% area, right, mm -hmm. of Mexican-American people or Latinos, right? So I can see how even going from within the same state, going from far west Texas to kind of like the middle of Texas and seeing that type of, I guess, that difference, it sounded to me as if you were a little isolated or lonely. Yeah, 
Yeah, it was. And I, and I felt like any time that I tried to share with other people what I was going through or how I felt very just different. I mean, the University of Texas at Austin is predominantly white and historically has been white. Mm -hmm. So I think that still makes up most of the student population, although with time it's gotten more diverse. Um, so I think I got there at a time where I was probably still more diverse, but still predominantly white. So I don't know, it was just hard for me to connect with people that didn't really understand one where I was coming from, why it was so hard for me. And I mean, like you said, I'm used to being like on the border and around a certain culture and community and to not have that around. I think it was hard for people to get mm -hmm. that. Right. So I feel like you're not alone in that experience. You went east, right? Mm -hmm. I went like 60 miles north and I felt kind of a similar sense of isolation. Um, when I was in graduate school, I went to New Mexico State University, which is 60 miles away from here, right? And you'd think, okay, it's so close to El Paso, it's gotta be really similar. Well, it isn't. <laughs> we only had, I think, eight people in my graduate school cohort for my counseling program, and I was the only Mexican-American there. So to me, everybody else was white or white passing because of their skin color and their accents and things like that. So um, even though I was 60 miles away, I chose to live there. Um, because I wanted to focus solely on my schoolwork and not be distracted at home with other things. But um, it was a little isolating sometimes because it was hard to find a niche, like you said, or a set of people that understood where I was coming from. It wasn't until about a year into the program where we met other students that were coming in. So they were the newer cohort of our class or our program. And there I met some people who were from El Paso. So then... I wasn't in class with them all the time, um, so we didn't really have a lot of representation in class, but at least after class, I was able to talk to some of them and engage with them. And when I was feeling really lonely, I had the luxury of coming home, which was nice, right? So mm -hmm. I can imagine how over there, you're so far, it would take a long time to travel back over here. It would cost money to come back mm -hmm. over here if you feel lonely. So your like, support network is so far away. Yeah, I consider myself fortunate to be able to come back um, to be able to connect with my community again. Um, but also, um, Spanish isn't my first language. It's my second language. I didn't learn how to formally speak it until I was like 25 years old. <laughs> so I didn't, e I didn't belong necessarily either to like Mexican culture because my Spanish wasn't good enough or I wasn't Mexican enough, right? And then so to the white people that I was with, I perceived myself not white enough Right. So I was like in the middle of both. And that was really strange for me. So, yeah, I, I can see what you're saying. And it makes me think of you, Hazel, how you're up there. You went to UTEP, which is here in El Paso, and then you traveled to the Midwest, where I would imagine there's much less representation um, for Mexicans, Mexican-American people. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your experience up there? Oh, yeah, definitely. So I think one thing to note is... Um, I, honestly, I echo each and every single thing that you guys said. Um, not being able to find my niche, being far away, being away from my, really, support system. So my parents are first generation in the United States. Um, and so growing up, all of our family was in Juarez. So anytime my mom needed a babysitter, vamos a Juarez, let's go to Juarez. 
they drop us off with our grandparents and they'd go out or do whatever they needed to do. But it was a daily thing crossing that border. And I think that was one of the biggest shockers when I came to Nebraska that they're like, what do you mean you would come and go to Mexico every day? Like, that's just the culture of the town. Like, it's our sister city. Like, we go over there all the time. So one of the things I struggled with here was I was never Mexican enough for my Mexican family, but I was never American enough for my community in the United States. So fast forward to grad school, and I come to UNL, and I formed a very strong identity as Mexican, Mexican-American, and I realize here that when I say I'm Mexican, they think, oh, she was born in Mexico. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm American. I'm Mexican-American. And I'm like, oh, okay, so you're, you're Latina. And I'm like, yes. That was the first time I ever really had to identify as anything other than Mexican because I was always just Mexican when I was in El Paso. So over here I got lumped with every other kind of Latino that I had never even had a chance to interact with because El Paso is primarily Mexican, Mexican-American. Um, and over here, there's Peruvians, there's Puerto Ricans, there's Salvadorians, there's you name it. You just hear some Spanish and you're like, whoa, where are you from? I'm Latina, I'm Mexican. What country are you from? And you just connect. And there's a different type of connection than that in El Paso. So those intergroup relations really do start shifting. So my identity as being Mexican shifted to, yes, I am Latina. There is, you know, I belong to a larger group. Um, and it became very difficult to really find where I really fit in um, because there wasn't any graduate student organizations for Latino students. Um, we had MASA, which is the Mexican-American Student Association, but that wasn't for grad students. That was for undergraduates. So that was very difficult. And um, I think now I've become this sort of annoying beating drum in our department. There is no diversity here. We have no faculty of color. We have no one to turn to. We need to change. And I think I'm just like that annoying gnat now. <laughs> um, and so one of the faculty actually came back and said, you know, we actually have a lot of Latinos. And I was like, really? And they're like, yeah, it's about, I think it was like 10 or 15% at that point. And I was like, what? Where are these Latinos? Because I don't see them. Like, I feel so isolated in my program. And so there were more Latinos, but what they didn't tell you is that a lot of them are AVD, and so they're not really around, you know, which is what I am now. AVD means all but dissertation. So you don't necessarily have to be on campus because you don't have to take any more classes. You're done with all your courses. You've taken your comprehensive exams, and all you have to do is your dissertation, and you don't have to be in Nebraska to do that. Um, and so I just wasn't feeling like I belong there. Um, and I've always been very open about who I am. I do not hide my identity. I definitely wear it on my sleeve. Um, 
I know that when I pronounce my name, I always say my name is Rosa Hazel Vergado when I'm at conferences, and I definitely don't Americanize it. And I know, you know, I've had several other students come back and say, you know, why do you do that? Why do you feel like you have to say it like that and then spell it out for people? And I was like, you know why? Because when I moved to Nebraska and I said, my name is Rosa Hazel Rigabo, and I had to correct them, and they said, oh, you mean Rosa Hazel Delgado. I'm sorry, you said it with an accent. After that moment, that was like my first week here in Nebraska. After that moment, and I, I remember I, I was with my mom. So it may have been like the first two or three days in Nebraska. And my mom was just like, okay, they're correcting your name? Like, what is going on? And I was like, I know. And from that moment on, I really took it upon myself to say, you know what? You are not going to change my name. My name is Rosa Hazel Delgado. And if it makes you uncomfortable, I will spell it out for you. But I'm not changing my name for you. My family is also very, very proud, very um, hardworking, and they really want what's best for us. And my parents always said, you know, when you do something, be the best or don't do it at all. And so I got to my second semester in grad school, and I'm not really finding anyone that I can really identify with, and I'm not finding a community that I could really you know, latch on to, and I remember going to TAPS, the Counseling and Psychological Services at UNL, and they had a psychiatrist there, and he was like, he literally told me, grad school just isn't for you. I can write you a letter, get you out of your lease, and you can quit and go back home if you want to be home so bad with your family. Oh, my God. And I remember (laughs) just being like, this is like, I was so mad. Oh, my God. And luckily, by that point, I had made a very dear friend. Um, she's now Dr. Berinda Inojos, and she works at TAPS now. Um, and I remember we were struggling through stats together, and I, I opened up to her because she was also Mexican, but she was from Kansas City, so she would get to go home and be with family a lot more often. So her struggles were definitely very different from mine, but I identified with her, and she was finally someone that I could confide in, and I told her, you know, what happened, and she was like, oh my God, do not go back there, you know, that's terrible advice, you can do this, like, the Midwest sucks, but I'm here for you, and she really took me under her wing and really just said, look, I'm going to help you out, like, it's not, like, you can do this, and really, I found a community through her, and I, I was lucky in that sense, and I was able to go to her anytime I needed something or I needed my little, you know, (laughs) cultural inoculation where I felt like I had somebody. And from then on out, like, I really stayed away from CAPS. I was just like, I'm not doing it. And even though she was, like, telling me, like, not everyone's like that, try somebody else, you know, whatever, blah, 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 um, I just really didn't feel comfortable. One, because culturally... Like, my mom always said, like, oh, no, don't go to a psychologist. When I told her I was studying psychology, she was like, oh, vas a ser lo que era? You're going to study crazy people? Like, really? <laughs> and so it was very, you know, difficult because I didn't want to go to counseling because I knew how 
it was viewed in my culture not very positively, but I also felt isolated, and I knew I was getting depressed, and I was anxious, and I didn't have anyone to turn to, and literally looking in all my classes, looking on campus, it was just white people everywhere. And then I'd see a black person and I'd want to go high-five them. And then I'd randomly see, you know, any person of color. And I'd just want to go be their friend because there was just so few of us on campus um, that it was very difficult. I was finally able to have that community and um, get past a lot of these terrible acculturation processes that I had to endure Um, And then I started teaching at UNL, and I started seeing some of these Latino students, and they would all come up to me, like, I'm so glad we have a Latino faculty. And I'm like, I'm not faculty, I'm a grad student, I'm an instructor. And that really gave me a huge push to keep on going with my degree, because so many times I was just ready to quit. And at one point, I even thought, I think I emailed you, Crystal. I think I was like, I hate social psychology. I don't want to do this. I don't know what I'm doing. Why am I here? Like, I want to hear about other programs. And looking back now, it's not that I hated social psychology. I love what I do, and I'm glad I stuck to it. It was that I hated being at this institution in the Midwest, away from my family, away from my community. And what I was really struggling with was that acculturation and really being able to be myself um, ethnically and really straddling both lines of having to, because we all know when we're around our colleagues and we're on, um, at conferences, we speak one way, you know, we use our jargon and we, you know, talk about everything we know. But when we're with our family, we you know, loosen up and we don't use the jargon anymore and we, you know, go back to being more comfortable and being able to really express ourselves differently, Um, going home and, you know, sometimes hearing comments about, you know, oh, she thinks she's all that now that she's getting her doctorate and she's gone up north and she's American and, like, yes, I'm American, but I'm also Mexican. So that's definitely one piece that's been... I think always something that I'm going to struggle with, um, proving that I belong in both worlds and that it's okay. Even because you're going, okay, so we're in higher education, but also you're going for all of it, like the PhD. And so I feel like the higher you go, the less representation there is, at least for Latinos. Um, and so, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, it. it's, it sounds like you're going to have to accept <laughs> that struggle and also just kind of navigate your way through it, unfortunately, because that's just how our world is right now. But I'm really, I have to say I'm proud of you because um, there aren't a lot of Latino professors or people who have PhDs and stuff like that. And uh, to me, representation is really important. So for you to go into a college and not see any faculty there that are Latino that's that's like heartbreaking almost because it's like um hello we're here and we're like the majority of the population or we're going to be right and Uh it's unbelievable that all that kind of stuff is happening Dora I'd like to I'd like to hear your experience so before I begin speaking on my experience I just wanted to two random kind of not random but related points um 
from hearing Myra and Hazel speak. There's a movie coming out pretty soon uh, called Sorry to Bother You. But the movie is basically this black man and he's working in like sales kind of. And he's struggling at his job because of his voice. And one of his cube mates turns to him and he's like, no, like put your white voice on. And so the movie goes from him struggling at his job to him trying to change the way he speaks. And it shows like how much he progresses in the job because he changes his voice to speak white. And I think that'll be an interesting movie to to watch and like to relate to everything that that uh, we'll talk about because I'm, I'm sure the actor he's he's in the uh the show atlanta with uh donald glover on uh he's one of the actors on the show as well but he has his own movie now and it's, it's called sorry to bother you and it's it's basically about what we're talking about now so that's one random point uh second the name hazel the name uh thing that you brought up is uh it's something that i struggle with when i go out and you know i'm purchasing something they ask like what's your name like because i don't want to tell like my name's a little difficult to pronounce um i just say jay and one day i was in austin with a friend of mine we were ordering pizzas and they're like can i get a name and i said jay and he turns to me and he's like why are you why are you not saying your name and then i was like well it's difficult for them to pronounce and he's like why do you care about like what they think about your name if it's difficult to pronounce like you'd be proud of your name and you say it and then i was like like it's their problem yeah not it's your their problem. problem not my problem and so i was like wow like I, I never thought of it like that in my whole life i've always when people ask me as of recently I've, I've definitely changed it but my whole life it's always been like what's your name i'm like jor arcilla and mm-hmm. not now when people ask me i'm like jor arcilla and and so like that that really stood out to me um when, when you said that, because it, it's it's definitely something I struggle with. I know other people struggle with as well. It's like, uh-huh. how do we, when do we pronounce our name right? And we shouldn't, we shouldn't be in that position to even think that, like, you should just say your name, how you say it. And, and so my experience, um, so I'm, my background, um, I'm from Houston, Texas, but my parents are from Colombia. And the region of Colombia that they're from is called Bonaventura and it's predominantly, you know, Afro, Afro-Colombians. Um, black Colombians um, is predominantly uh, what consists of the people in Bonaventura. And so growing up in Houston, it was always difficult for me because I look black. I mean, I am black. I look black, but people, when I speak Spanish, they're like, whoa, like, what are you? And it was hard for me to uh, to mix in the, like I had what people would say, oh, you have the best of both worlds. But I'm like, really like i don't feel that i felt i felt isolated my entire life if i hung around latinos it was like oh but you don't look like us at all and then if i hung around black people it was like well you speak spanish you're different and so it was like with my whole life it was just like where do i fit in like it was just i was you know to myself a lot of the time it was just very difficult to 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 find my niche, my community, um, and so I I found myself resorting to just hanging hanging out with people that were just like me. So in Houston, fortunately, there was a large Afro-Colombian population, and I was fortunate enough to grow up with 
about six, it was like six, six of my cousins. We all, we, we were all Afro-Colombian, all the same age, and we all lived in the same region. So we went to the same schools together. And so I always, I, I would always resort to hanging out with them and strictly being that. Like I, I hung around with other people that weren't in my race or, you know, of my community, but it they were my support system and they were the people that I hung out with all the time. So I was always out of the group, I would say, well, my other cousin as well, but we were always ambitious as far as like what we wanted in our lives. And so obviously when college came around, it was like, okay, I know I, I've always wanted to go to UT. I didn't really look into, I didn't, I didn't know the population of UT. And so when I got accepted to UT and I moved, it was one of the hardest experience. Like I remember my first day and I hadn't even started class yet. And I had already seen like the different culture of Austin period. And I remember three days before classes started, I was calling U of H, the University of Houston, asking if I can, if there's any way I can submit an application to, to just move back to Houston and go to the University of Houston. And so they were like, no. So I was like, okay, I'll stick it out this semester. Was, I hadn't even started classes and I was already feeling like, um, it's just very, it was just very overwhelming. I remember that first year, the every single weekend, as soon as classes were over, I would get pack all my stuff. In my, I had everything packed in my car and drive to Houston every weekend for a year um, because I just didn't feel like I was a part of that community. And, and especially like once I started school, it was like, OK, like there's nothing more white people here like this. I don't even first off, I grew up where in the area that I grew up is predominantly black or Latino. And so there was two things that affected me. It was one, you don't belong your whole life. You've been kind of told you don't belong as a Latino or as a black person. And now you see all these white people and it's like, yo, like, I don't even know who do I belong to. So I'm just going to resort to my, what I've known my whole life and go back to Houston every single weekend. So after hearing everybody speak, I picked up on some, feelings that we all had in common um, in our experiences. Um, some of those were feeling isolated, feeling lonely, feeling sad or depressed, feeling anxious, or a sense of being seen as an imposter, like, do we really belong here? What are we doing here? Feeling excluded and things like that. And it sounds like we really needed support systems and representation and unfortunately we don't always get that in higher education or in the workforce. I think it's important that we talk about this over a podcast because we don't know if it'll impact that one listener who's feeling kind of sad or feeling lonely about their experiences and maybe they want to give up in some way, um, quit grad school or quit their job because they're not feeling included. What I was going to, or what I want to say is that I think something also that we all have in common is talking about the lack of representation for our communities and the institutions that we're in, whether it's at work or in higher education. And we've talked about racism and we know about racism and we know what that could look like at the individual level. But I think what we're talking about is more of like systemic and institutional oppression, right? Like, why are there not more people like us in these positions? Why are there not a lot more people like us in higher education? Why is it so difficult? And I think that now when we're in these positions or even, you know, studying for our PhDs or master's program, 
we're realizing that it's much more complex than just somebody calling me a name or making fun of my accent or my right because right? I think that's what people think of when they think of racism right or oppression like oh you didn't get the right to vote or oh I called you the n-word or an s-word or whatever and they think that that's what it is but there's also a systemic oppression you're right and I think I also want to add like yes I think that this podcast is important for other people of color who may be going through something like this but I think it's equally important for our white friends to listen to this because these are conversations that make people very uncomfortable and it's a nice insight to hear what people of color are going through in predominantly white institutions or um, employment and it really gives a lens that you know maybe some white people haven't had the opportunity to have a discussion about or maybe shy away about so I think that this podcast really helps give that insight and um, maybe open up some conversations because I think that a lot of times diversity and inclusion and um, the issues that plague people of color not only at the individual level and in the systemic um, with that systemic oppression um, but I think that it's oftentimes put on our shoulders as an issue that we have to take on. And I think that this is a good opportunity for, you know, white allies to really come out and say, I hear you and I want to help make this better. Yeah, I definitely agree. Like, as you were talking, I kind of rolled my eyes, but not at you, but at the fact that what you mentioned right now, (laughs) what you mentioned right now is that it's on our shoulders most of the time to have to explain this crap to people. And it's exhausting. Like, it's really tiring. And it's like, Jesus, like, can you just get it already? I saw this meme the other day on Facebook of this cat, like, rolling its eyes. And it was like, somebody's still not getting it after the 19th time you explain it to them. And it's like, for real, I'm kind of, kind of sick of it. And you would think that it wouldn't be relevant in my life right now, considering that I live in El Paso and that I'm across from the border and I live with my family who's mostly Mexican and stuff like that. But it exists even in this city, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of uh-huh. like, are you serious? <laughs> so it's a little exhausting. Oh, yeah. Um, so as I was hearing George talk, um, he made a comment saying, you know, that, you know, sometimes he doesn't understand some of these things that are being said. And he's like, what? And people will look at him like, why don't you understand? And I 100% identified with that. <laughs> I, there are so many things that I just don't get. And I'm just like, what does that mean? Um, and so I think that it's important not only to have a community um, that you can go to that, you know, are ethnic minorities, um, because you have those similarities. But I think it's also important to have, you know, your white allies. I have a very good um, friend in my lab that I always go to, and I'm like, hey, they just said someone's going to die on a hill. What does that mean? And he's like, oh, hey, well, <laughs> but, you know, they're going to take on this issue, and they're willing to die on that hill. So I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. So he, like, really explains it to me. You know, the thing that stuck out to me about what you were saying about your name, Hazel, is that, My father, he came from Mexico when he was four. Apparently, in El Paso, there was something called um, Americanization efforts at that time. And he was briefly explaining it to me, and I'm pretty sure I don't have the whole picture. Um, But what it sounds like, it's basically um, forced acculturation and assimilation. And so what was happening 
at that time in the Segundo Barrio here in El Paso was that there were kids, um, Mexican kids or kids um, that either came from Mexico or spoke Spanish that were being kind of uh, indoctrinated into white culture. So they had all these kind of like white teachers and white coaches and white speech teachers and people who would help them pronounce things correctly, quote unquote. It kind of strikes me as like really, really wrong <laughs> um, because I kind of feel like that had something to do with the fact that I didn't learn Spanish until I was 25. That's number one. Um, so that that kind of thing kind of went down to my generation. But then also that they changed my dad's first name. So his birth name was Ricardo and they changed it uh, through immigration to Richard because it wasn't American enough, right? Mm -hmm. So unfortunately we have to live with that reality, um, but I know that his family still calls him like Ricardo or Cardo or whatever, um, which is nice, but legally we have to keep his name. And then it also makes me think of my dad too because he'll call me sometimes and he's in his 60s now, so <laughs> he's a, a funny old guy and he'll call me and be like, you know what I heard the other day? I heard some white people talking and he said right off the bat, what the hell does that mean, right? And I'm like, I don't know, <laughs> you know? He's like, apparently it means when you start or from the start, why can't they just say that? Like, it's just funny, like just kind of some of the things that my dad has experienced, I feel like I want to interview him now, but like, um, yeah, and he's talked to me about some other racist stuff that he's experienced like in the Navy and at his old workplaces where he's mm -hmm. quit and all this stuff because like some racist stuff was going on, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what saying. you're talking about and what we've talked about in terms of our names is anglicizing, right? Like, That's what it is. Yeah. We're taking away the accent from our names to assimilate or to acculturate to dominant society. So on that, just a random <laughs> tidbit as well. I remember having a job. I was working at Papacitos in Austin and I went to the host and I, I could tell, I mean, obviously she's a Latina woman and I... For some reason, when I get around, like, older Latinas or Latinos, I speak to them in Spanish first. And so I, 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 said, so, <laughs> I said something to her in Spanish. I was like, hola, como esta? And she was like, don't speak to me in Spanish ever mm -hmm. again. And she was like, I worked too hard to... I, I dealt with a lot of issues in my life that... And I struggled a lot because I would speak Spanish all the time. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, whoa, like... I've never experienced that. I never ran into somebody like that that was affected that much from for them just speaking yeah. Spanish. So it's the same thing. Like, um, it's yeah, that's it's crazy. It's traumatic, right? Yeah. Like people get traumatized. We can get traumatized by these things when other people are forcing things upon us. Like, I don't want to be Myra Garcia. Maybe it's Myra Garcia. Maybe I want to be Myra Garcia. But when somebody's forcing it on you, yeah, it's... then it just becomes so much more. And that's where the mental health piece ties in, right? Exactly. We're, we're higher risk already as minorities to um, be affected by depression. And then now you add all of the cultural issues. So maybe even more likely. I don't even know the statistics, but maybe like two or three times more likely. What about PTSD? Like people don't talk about historical or cultural trauma as much. And I mean, that's what these people have experienced, like your dad and like this hostess at Papacitos. Like, you know, they they have worked really hard, but also it was forced upon them. Mm -hmm. And if not, like they probably wouldn't have been as happy and maybe their lives would have been 
even more difficult than what they are now. Right. And I, I think that my dad, he ended up, it's so weird because when he runs into old coworkers or he talks to a white person, oh, his white voice comes on and it's freaking weird. The first time I heard it, I think I was like five or six years old and I was like, what the hell is that? But I knew for some reason it registered in my brain that that was desirable, mm-hmm. you know, and it's kind of, he didn't explicitly say it to me, right? Mm-hmm. He wasn't like, you talk like that, like talk like the way dad's talking. He didn't tell me that, but I know that it probably has to do with like the movie that you were mentioning earlier, his success at work, because he did get promoted and he was a trusted asset to that company. But he would he would speak like that with kind of like a Texan mm-hmm. accent, like a like a twang, like that. And I'm like, like what the hell this Mexican ass <laughs> dude talking with a twang, you know? And I I kinda like laugh at it, but it's a survival yeah. thing, right? Like he had to I use like it that. to survive. Yeah, I wanna address diversity and inclusion and how they're a little bit different from each other um and so there's a quote that i found a little earlier um i was looking up some research and looking up some quotes and things that we could talk about um but i really felt like this one struck me and i think that it will resonate with you all also and the quote is diversity is being invited to the party but inclusion is being asked to dance so I'm wondering if you have any reactions to that or if we can talk about that a little bit. I think we all probably have really strong reactions. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I, I definitely relate to that. Uh, when I was being recruited to come to UNL, they were like, come, we have the Latino Research in- Initiative and we do research on Latino issues and we care and we, you know, whatever. <laughs> So they're, like, doing everything the most to get me here. And I get here, and guess what? Latino Research Initiative hasn't really, isn't really active anymore. So if you want to be a part of it, you have to resurrect it. And, you know, we're doing, it's really hard to do research on Latino, but there's really just not that many out here. And so you're going to have to do it on your own. And you really have, so I, you know, they brought me here. You know, it looks good on them. Their numbers are increasing in their diversity, but then they don't do anything to keep us here. And the retention rates of people of color in higher education, I mean, I think George spoke to it too. He was already looking at the University of Houston to see if he could go back. You know, we want to be around our community, but we also want to be a part of this. You what? You know, we want to be included, and that's why we're there. But a lot mm-hmm. of times we're just not, the effort to keep us at these institutions isn't there. And so we have to do everything possible, you know, to stay there and do what we want to do and actually seek out the communities that we want to be a part of and make ourselves be included because it's not going to happen systemically. They're not going to reach out to us. And I think that 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 really speaks to a whole different systemic issue that I I think is like a whole different podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It probably is, and it's all the more exhausting because not only are we having to explain this crap, we also have to create our own niches and create our own clubs to like feel included like that's freaking exhausting 
Plus, nobody got time for that or the money. Mm -hmm. And it must be nice to have those things built into society for you, right? It's like, it's not fair. (laughs) My my friend, um, Janice Castro, she, um, her first year at UNL, her second semester, she's like, how do you do it? Like, there is no organizations. I don't fit in anywhere. So she actually took it upon herself to start LGSA, the Latino Graduate Student Association. But she didn't know anyone. She knew me. And so I was like, you know what? You want to do this? I will back you up. And little by little, we all just kind of came together. And LGSA was born at UNL. But we had to create that inclusion. That wasn't something that UNL thought to create or to develop for their students. Yeah, so they're creating diversity, quote unquote diversity, right? And then, but it's for funding reasons and to look good. Oh, and we're checking off these boxes and we're a diverse campus and it's like BS. (laughs) I think the thing that comes to mind for me is like we meet their needs as an institution, right? Like we're fulfilling diversity, Mm -hmm. but what about our needs, right? Exactly. yeah, Yeah, that's not inclusion. So we're meeting diversity, but not inclusion we're kind of just left out right it's like there's there's people of color here on either on this staff or in this organization or in this cohort of people but it doesn't mean that we are included because that's a difference right so inclusion is being asked to dance meaning like being valued um wanting to stay um feeling a sense of welcoming feeling a sense of um accomplishment and feeling like I think it's also like a commitment to help people rise right like people you're recruiting a diverse group of people or cohort or whatever for whether it's school or business but also what are you doing to continue to help those people grow and also to bring in more people like that but these institutions aren't concerned about that, right? Like, they just need to meet a quota or maybe, like, yeah. look a certain oh, you're way. different. This will be great for funding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This will be great for when we have to include the diversity checkbox, right? Like, yeah. Or need to take some pictures for our brochures. Take up the pictures for... Oh, man. Oh, my God. That's, like, the worst. Oh, like, let's put the... Like, the whole, like, the token black person or the yeah. token Latina person. It's like, okay, we included you guys, like... Oh my God, that's just so wrong. Um, it makes me think of how exploitative that is too. It's like, we're using you to get funding and to lead people to believe that we include you all, right? Like mm-hmm. you people or whatever, but really they do nothing to serve us or to keep us. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, bye. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I've been asked at work, I actually was already in a promo video. I'm that token black guy, I guess. Like. They're like, oh, we need to do some video. Oh, get Jor. Like, Jor should be in the video or Jor should be in that picture. Hmm. And it's like, okay, like, you can just ask me, but I feel like there's an underlying reason why you're asking me only. Like, there's other people here, you know, like, but... Which is a microaggression. Yeah. And so I think, like, we need to define that because we've mentioned it a couple of times here. From what I understand, microaggressions are not an overt act of aggression. So they are a little bit covert. And they're micro because they seem to be small and tiny and microscopic. However, the impact on the person can add up over time. 
So it's like adding little grains of sand into a bin or a sandbox, and each microaggression that occurs builds up builds up into this big box of sand. You did a great job. I think with microaggressions, it's something that is just, it almost seems benign. It doesn't, you're like, oh, did they say that to mean it that way or not? But it really does start adding up. So for example, I, um, a few years back, I was dating this guy, and he was, he, you know, I got mad at him for something that he did, and he straight up told me, like, life isn't a telenovela, Hazel. Like, get over it. It's not a big deal. Why is that a microaggression? Because telenovelas are associated with Latinos. I am Latina, and he's making the assumption that I'm being dramatic because I am Latina and I'm trying to treat you know, that instance as a telenovela, which I wasn't. I was in the right, but, you know, whatever. We won't get into that. <laughs> uh, I was going to bring up just a, a question. Can microaggressions be unspoken? Like, can you feel an, a microaggression without even having a communication with that person? Yes. I think oh, the yeah. first thing that comes to mind is, like, I think there was a study done. I've, people have talked about this for a long time. Like when white women are walking and a black man is walking the opposite way and then they just clutch their purses. Uh-huh. Like they're not saying anything, okay. right? But that's a microaggression because yeah. why, why? Like why would you assume yeah. that or why would you feel the need to do that? Mm-hmm. And I remember a few years ago yeah. like that had come up that they had done a study, something like that. And how those, how women re- didn't tend to react that way when it was a person that looked like them. Hmm. But when it was a black person, they would just clutch their purses or kind of like seem uncomfortable. Like that's an unspoken micro. Yeah. And the reason I ask that is because I feel that a majority of the times that I walk into a room of people that I don't know. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's it's almost like you can hear a (gasps) without hearing that actual yeah, like without the sound. Yeah, and it feels like that. And it's like, like, okay, now now I feel a different pressure, like I feel like I don't belong and it's like you really don't want to talk to me right now and that's a microaggression alone like yeah because they're not straight up telling right. you what the heck are you doing here yeah you're obviously different from us and you need to leave because you're making us uncomfortable because yeah. that's a straight up aggressive yeah. <laughs> right way to say it but just the fact that they kind of like pull and back like, or they like you're look invited at you. to the meeting right yeah or you're asked to the dance or you're mm-hmm. asked to to, the, to party, the party to go to the party yeah but then it's like you're not asked to dance so it's the same thing it's like but we checked off the box because right. we invited so there's, exactly. a lot of, there's a lot of research on that in terms of social distance so like um you know inviting you to the interview and saying okay mm. um we're going to interview for this job but then how close do they actually sit to you you know do they sit closer to you to someone who is white versus someone who is a person of color. So there's a lot of research that documents that. Um, We actually do some of that research in our lab, um, but focusing on mental health, whether you think someone's bipolar or um, Mm. depressed or they're just having issues with their work and how close they sit um, to the person that they're talking to. So some of that work will come out eventually. (laughs) It's being conducted right now, but... You know, there's also some work that looks at, you know, your neighbors and the neighborhoods and who and how neighborhoods have been displaced as ethnic minorities start moving in. A traditionally white neighborhood um, starts seeing some diversity, um, a different group coming in, and guess what? It's no longer, 
predominantly white, it's now, you know, this other ethnic group because you don't necessarily want to be around them. Uh, but you're not saying that. That's not why you're moving. You're just upgrading your house. You're getting something new, you know? That's... And I, I think that people don't realize that they're doing it a lot of the time. A lot of the time, if you bring it up to them and you're like, hey, that was a microaggression, or hey, do you know what that was that made me feel kind of weird? What are you accusing me of? I'm not a racist person. How dare you? You know, stuff like that. And it's like, dude, it's a microaggression. It was kind of passive aggressive. It is how you said it doesn't seem benign. Right. And then they engage in these things and they're like, they have no clue that they did it. (laughs) Yeah. Or empathy or validating. Right. I feel like the easiest way to explain a microaggression is like, when your unconscious bias slowly leaks out of your brain, like just in yeah, and like small in a little tiny, I think, yeah, a little droplet. I think it's also important to talk about, you know, intent versus impact. Like mm-hmm. you didn't intend to hurt your feel that person's feelings, but it impacted them. And if it impacted them negatively, then it's something that you need to to talk about and you need to check yourself, you know, because it is a microaggression. And it's not okay if it's impacting that person negatively. Right, right. Um, something that comes to my mind also is something that you brought up last week, Myra. Something about um, racial battle fatigue. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Um, so, I feel like in the last few weeks, I've been doing a lot of research um, about systemic oppression, um, racial inequality, and social injustices. And one of the things that came up was a new term that was coined not too long ago, and it's called racial battle fatigue. Um, They (laughs) coined this term at a university to describe the way that students, minority students, were feeling on campus when they didn't feel a part of the dominant culture. So racial battle fatigue can be also extended out to people of color who are Um, constantly trying to fight for social justice or just trying, not even constantly, just explaining this at some point or another. And it's almost like you start to burn out. You feel exhausted mentally, emotionally, physically. You start to lose energy. You start to feel hopeless, helpless. And it makes you kind of want to just give up on social justice and racial equality. Um, And I thought that was really interesting because... For me, when I read that, I was like, this totally describes how I feel right now. Like, I'm exhausted. I'm getting off of work at 7 and I'm going to sleep at 8.45. And I'm just so tired and nothing has changed throughout my day. And the only difference is that I feel like I'm on activist mode 24-7. And having these conversations is tiring and it's so nice to finally have a term. It's nice to have a term, but it's also sad to have that term, right? Like racial battle fatigue. Right. I would almost equate it to like feeling hyper vigilant all the time, right? Where you're just, it's like a symptom of PTSD where you're super aware of your surroundings and you have to constantly fight off these invisible triggers or actual triggers or, you know, demons or whatever all the time, all day long. And it's your, you're activated all the time and it's like really exhausting. So if you are the token black person or you are the one Latina in Nebraska in a research lab, like that's much more magnified I feel and it's more exhausting probably. Um, And what's weird is that how I was saying earlier is that in El Paso you would think that 
we wouldn't have to feel that, right? Because there's a bunch of Mexicans everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, okay, I'm not going to have to be fighting this racial battle all the time. But really, it's <laughs> it's more interesting and I think more intricate when you're fighting it in a place where there are a lot of people of color because there's like little nuances in our in our communities, right? Where, for example, how my dad was taught that whiteness and having that Texas twang is more desirable, right? It, that was here in El Paso, but it's something that exists. And it's just so strange to me. It's like, why is this happening here? <laughs> yeah. A lot of things that people don't take into account when it comes to intergroup relations and, you know, who is a part of us and who belongs to them. Mm. And like right now in Nebraska, people of color, I am a part of that group. Black, Asian, doesn't matter what type of Latino you are, you are my people. There's so few of us here. We have a community. Mm-hmm. If I were to go back to El Paso, though, it then we start seeing those intra-group distinctions where we start trying to distinguish ourselves based off of our skin color, based off of our hair. Is your hair is straight or is it, you know, a little more kinky? Um, you know, based off of your accent, how do you speak? Do you speak Spanish? Do you not? Oh, and if you do speak Spanish, how well do you speak Spanish? Oh, is it, you know, proper <laughs> Spanish or is it like street Spanish? Or does she talk like a fresa or does she talk, you know, kind of ghetto? Like, so we started distinguishing ourselves to find, you know, our groups and who's our in-group and I think that that's just fascinating to me so I, I think that these conversations are necessary all the time but I'm also a social psychologist so I'm going to say that <laughs> <laughs> that's true but that's why it's important to have you here because being a social psychologist is super important and there's so many different things that you could be looking at but I think the fact that you have decided to go with this area of study is really awesome because it's something that is so needed and it would be so different, I think, Hazel, if it were a bunch of white people doing this research because they wouldn't be able to pick up on either firsthand experience or cultural nuances that are necessary to be able to do this research. Um, so I commend you for that for sure. Uh, what Relating to what Hazel was saying, um... As far as uh, when we we did we asked uh, we we had a Black History Month project. Oh yeah. And uh, what uh, what me and this other photographer did we went around the community of El Paso just looking for Black Afro Latinos, um, and just to get their story. And we ran into a local uh, uh, rap artist, and he goes by the Fifth Estate, and he talks about his experience in El Paso. He's like, I've never experienced a minority, a minority city that discriminates against minorities. And when he said that, it was like, whoa, like there's just divisions everywhere. Like it's 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 white people, of course, uh, that 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 bring that um, oppression to it. But then there's also divisions within minorities. And it's Mm -hmm. like, yeah, you have to deal with all of that. And I've had a conversation with somebody recently about that. And I feel like that goes with that hypervigilance and like a trauma response that I rather, and this is not me personally, but like the mentality, right, of why I think this happens is I rather have control of kind of who I can bully rather than being bullied myself, Mm. right? So if, Uh if I feel oppressed by white people, I mean, it's internalized oppression, 
if I feel oppressed, then I'm going to internalize it and maybe like feel to feel a little bit more in control. I'm going to express my authority to somebody else or my dominance to somebody else because then that oppression from the dominant group that's kind of having um, dominance over me mm-hmm. won't be felt as much. Yeah. And I feel like that's how we cope, right? Because it's everywhere and I feel like it's always been present and it makes a lot of sense when you're thinking about trauma and like trauma responses. We do whatever we can to have control of something that we don't have control over. Yeah. Right. You know, one, let's say you have a border patrol agent with the name of Jerry Morales Garcia the yeah. third, right? But he's part of the border patrol. It's kind of like he's part of this oppressive entity right Mm -hmm. quote unquote and he is of mexican american descent or whatever so it's like wait a minute Mm -hmm. (laughs) like whose side you on first of all but it's kind of like that is that kind of what you mean yeah because that gives him some sense of power and privilege in a world where maybe he He wouldn't he wouldn't right because i'm Mm -hmm. like you look brown, you Mexican as hell, right? Like, like, what are you doing? Yeah, what are you doing? And you're like, you know, and he works as a border patrol agent. I'm like, okay, cool, right? Like, I don't get it. So it's like this cyclical also thing of oppression and perpetuating it over and over and over. And that's just how that happens. Very interesting. Right, and I, I think it's even dangerous to fall into that kind of conversation. Because if we think about the history of border patrol and why it was created, it wasn't created to catch people being smuggled into the country or, you know, whatever. It was really created to identify any counterfeit goods and, you know, finding things that shouldn't be, um, I guess, transported into the country because it's illegal. And somehow it's really just turned into um, really finding undocumented immigrants along the U.S.-Mexico border, because if you see, like, Border Patrol checkpoints, they don't have them along the U.S.-Canada border. And when I moved to Nebraska and I started traveling up in, you know, the northern part of the United States, I was like, hey, where are all these Border Patrol checkpoints? Because they don't exist up here. They're only along the U.S.-Mexico border. So that was very much a sign to me, like, okay, they're targeting a specific population. But that wasn't their purpose originally. And so it's it becomes offensive. Again, another one of these systemic issues that isn't talked about, that people don't know about, um, because we have ICE, we have Immigration Customs Enforcement, but somehow Border Patrol has really been wrapped up into that. Um, And so when we do see our fellow Latinos getting a job in Border Patrol, it makes us question, you know, well, whose side are you on? But at the end of the day, like, a job is a job and you know good for you for getting a job but also uh what about our people like it, yeah. it's, a, it's a hard struggle it That's is a hard line to uh, i don't know where i fall <laughs> you know yeah. it, that's um i'm completely like what are you doing like to me it's like and yeah a job is a job but to me i'm like and I guess because my parents, undocu- they're undocumented. They've been undocumented for 20 plus, or close to 30 years. And when I see other Latinos in Border Patrol or anything that's anti-immigration, I'm like, what? Like, to me, it's just like you have no idea like what I've experienced or other people in my situation have experienced. And to me, it's like, I don't know if it's right. It may be wrong for me to think like that, but I'm like, you have 
no right to be in that position or you just lack complete empathy. I, I see that and I'm like, I, I don't understand. I, I don't know why you would get into that. Mm. So. I think it's a fair perception though because, well, first of all, it's your personal experience and so we can't say like exactly. it's wrong, right? Mm-hmm. But I think exactly. it's, it's so true that to think about how much humanity or empathy do people have when they take jobs like this, right? Because if they did really reflect on what it actually is and what their identity is as a Mexican-American or a person of color to engage in this cycle of oppression, I'm sure that they'd be like, whoa, like this is, first of all, it's like an existential crisis. (laughs) But then I don't know if people would actually leave because it's a government job it has great benefits it's like like you said hazel like hey good job for landing that you know like it's an incredible job but but you know it comes with all this other stuff and i i think that people want to just turn a blind eye to that part and they just kind of like okay i think yes part of that but i also think that part of the conversation is we hold some power and privilege because we went to higher ed Right. So like, that's where I was exposed to these conversations. I remember I went, I had to pick an elective and I chose Latinos in the USA. And that's where I learned about, um, like migration. I learned about, uh, Latinos as a group. That's where I learned the term Chicana. That's where I learned everything. And I was like, mind blown. I was like, oh my God, like, Mm. wow. I was like, this totally makes sense. I understand. Like, I feel it. Like, I get it. I felt like a part of me finally was, like, put in place. But that's a privilege, Uh right? Because not everybody goes Mm. to college. Not everybody, like, not every person of color goes to college and is exposed to these conversations, like, or to this information. Instead, they're stuck in this hypervigilance or hyperarousal mode and just survival mode, right? They don't have time Uh to like have these conversations or resources, and like, or resources. Yeah. like they just live it that's true. and they accept it because that's the way that things are and that's the way that they can move along in life and that's okay because they don't have accessibility to it so I think that's where we come in right and why it's so important to have these conversations because we had that privilege hmm. and so what are true. we doing to con- make sure that our communities know about these topics otherwise it's just going to continue that's true. That's true. Exactly. I think I think that there's definitely an obligation to us having had the privilege to go into higher education and get this degree um, and really making sure that we're giving back to our community. And I 100% agree with you, Maida. Um, and I, I do want to say, you know, I'm not trying to defend the Border Patrol in any way, shape, or form. I'm just trying to be, you know, neutral about this. Um, and I, I will say, you know, kind of speaking to what we just said and us having had that opportunity of higher education, mm-hmm. and I don't know exactly what goes into um, being a Border Patrol agent and what you have to do, um, but I, I do question, you know, their diversity and inclusion and the training that they get because I you know, we hear these stories and they're they're traumatizing, you know, and it's mm. scary. I remember being little and I was born in the United States, but I remember being scared of Border Patrol and being like, la migra, la migra, you know, mm. and it's like, why was I scared? Like, I was born in the United States, but because that's what we were taught. And so I, I just, I, I, it's hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I, it's really, really interesting. And um, I think it's a conversation that we need to continue having 
So one last thing I'd like to ask of you all is if you could give a little input about what you think the general population, including white people, people who want to be allies to people of color and people of color themselves, what can we do to help fight the good fight or be an ally or contribute to this conversation? I think that a lot of times we think of, quote, fighting the fight, unquote, as kind of like rally, going to a rally and, you know, doing a march, which is great. I think we need to do those things when we have the opportunity. But I think that sometimes we can feel more effective or efficient with our efforts if we do it at an individual level, whether it means like calling somebody out in a respectful way um, when they show a microaggression or where they when they say something racist or that could be perceived as racist, whether it's your family, friends, um, anybody that you're around, I think that's something that anybody could do, right? Like, I think that's taking back the power and making a difference, even if it's just with that one person. Like you're planting a seed and making them change, like change the way they think or like question the way they think, like wait, did somebody really think the comment I made was racist or like discriminatory? I think that's one of the biggest things that I encourage anybody to do, like just naming it. Yeah, because it can prompt the self-reflection and yeah. it can also probably possibly stop them from doing that in the future and mm -hmm. then perpetuating the cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Really don't be afraid of these conversations. I think that so many times there's, you know, um, a conversation about race and all of a sudden all the white people sit down and they're quiet and ethnic minorities have to take it upon themselves to bring these issues forward and I really invite um, the white community to step forward and talk about these issues but don't just talk listen actually listen to what people of color are saying and try to understand from their point of view what they're going through without minimizing what they're saying because it may seem like these microaggressions don't matter but like crystal and might have said earlier like it really adds up you know a little grain of sand every single day something you know like i'm correcting you about your name oh hazel delgado no it's better apple you know just be respectful um number one and number two Try to be inclusive. Um, I think that we spent a really long time talking about, you know, the difference between diversity and inclusiveness. And I think, you know, I, I, I can't even remember how many times I've walked into a room full of white people and I get this, like, strange little stare and a creepy smile, like, we're acknowledging you, but you're not really a part of us. Like, nobody really talks to me. And it, it's kind of awkward. Like, just talk to them talk to these people coming in, include them in the conversation. You know, we are also a part of your community and let us be a part of that community and let us also engage in this conversation. Yeah, so in summary, be empathetic, <laughs> right? And like show yeah. some empathy and validate and don't minimize or invalidate. And then on top of that, be inclusive. And inclusive practices can include sitting next to somebody or going up to them and talking to them or having them join your group if you're sitting around at a meeting or whatever, but actually asking for their input, not just to sit there. Said exactly what I was thinking as far as just like, having that empathy and, and just being respectful and calling it out, I definitely feel is a, 
is some, in a respectful way, of course, but just you have to do that um, just just to um, to kind of keep your mind at peace, almost mm-hmm. because I mean, the more you internalize it, and the more you keep it to yourself, who knows what can happen one day? You know, you'll blow up, or you know, it's just that lack of communication is never good. And with that, I'd also like to say, like, for people of color, it's just to be, like, be proud of who you are and, like, what you bring uh, to the table. And so when it comes to situations like that, you know, you're you're confident in yourself to, one, be able to call it out and, two, hold your own. Um, and so, you know, never, never um, refrain from being you. At the end of the day, this is something that's systemically there. And so because it's there doesn't mean that you have to change yourself um to try to adapt or to try to make other people feel happy and so you know your own happiness is is at the end of the day (laughs) more important than all of that and so yeah just just be you be be real and be upfront in a respectful way of course so yeah, and I think that ties in nicely to how to take care of yourself and, yeah, you know, definitely. be mentally healthy because this can be exhausting, be isolating, all those feelings that we talked about earlier. So if you're part of fighting this fight or you're feeling isolated, um, how George said, like, reach out to somebody, talk to somebody, um, try to relate to somebody because if you continue to internalize it and you continue to let it bother you and poke at you every day, then that's not healthy and so yeah i think that um specifically with people of color we have to watch out for that and be there for each other too you know and understand that even though we are in el paso and we might take for granted the fact that all our neighbors can be mexican or whatever right like it's not the case with the rest of the world and so we have to just be really aware of that and how we carry ourselves and how we support each other whether it's across the united states or across the world just building that community and being part of it and how kind of like how hazel joined us today all the way from nebraska <laughs> so um, there you go, inclusivity. That's there you go. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So um, I'd like to thank all of you for coming onto the podcast and sharing your personal stories and your experiences. I truly, truly respect you for being able to do that and put those things into words and being vulnerable to the public because I don't really know who will listen to this, but I think that it takes guts to do what we've just done. And um, I really appreciate your input and um, keep moving forward. We're just going to have to keep doing it. Yeah. Definitely. Thank you. Um, I know. High five, you guys. Honestly, like when I was hearing you guys talk about your backgrounds, I was like, oh, I want to hug each and every one of these people because I get so excited when I hear other Latinos being successful and having gone through higher education because Mm -hmm. I don't see that very often here. So Uh, high five to all of you guys. (laughs) Right back at you. Definitely. Yes, a big high five to everyone on today's dream team. This was an awesome interview. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. I'm Cristal Martinez Acosta on Through the Eyes of a Therapist. Until next time.